If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's radio fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City, one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City. It is our great honor and joy to have with us this morning Reverend, Reverend Lawrence Ware, who is co-director of the Center for Africana Studies and a teaching assistant professor of philosophy at Oklahoma State University in Stillwater. He has been an ordained minister in the Progressive National Baptist Convention for over 10 years. A frequent contributor to the New York Times, The Root, Slate Magazine, and Very Smart Brothers, he is also a contributing editor of The Religious Left. He has been a commentator on race, religion, and politics for NPR, MSNBC, News One, Sirius XM, and Public Radio International. It is our great joy for Lawrence Ware to be with us. And uh, it was my privilege to stand with him this year at the Oklahoma Conference of Churches annual day at the legislature, where he gave a very, very important message and, and continues to speak on important matters of faith. It is our privilege that he is with us this morning. Mayflower, please help me wel welcome Reverend Lawrence Ware. It is an honor to be here with you this morning. Uh, it is just a blessing to be here. Uh, I love this church. I oftentimes hide way up here in the balcony whenever I'm visiting. Um, but I, I love this church. I love what this church represents. And I am uh, so humbled and honored to be here with you this morning. Uh, please, if you would, please put your hands together for uh, your own Pastor Lori, who does so much work in the community. Uh, one of the things that I've learned is that uh, many of the things that you are exposed to frequently, you sometimes take for granted. Uh, you don't realize just how special and how brilliant uh, that thing is. And don't take Lori for granted. She is a, a shining light in our community. And so I thank you for your work uh, that you do. Now, I'm not a long-winded preacher. I promise you I will not stand before you long. I was taught that if you cannot be brilliant, uh, you can at least be brief. Uh, and so I will do the best that I can to be a little bit of both this morning. Those of you that have your Bibles, I'm going to be coming out of the book of Amos, a very familiar passage of Scripture, I'm sure, for many of you. It was one of MLK's favorite passages of Scriptures. Uh, is Amos chapter 5, uh, coming out of the Hebrew Bible, verses 21 through 24, very familiar passage of Scripture. The Bible says, I hate, I despise your feast days. And I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer uh, me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness as an ever-flowing stream. When I was writing this, uh, initially my thought was God does not have low expectations, but the more that I begin to work on this, uh, my title changed a little bit. And so if you will indulge me, we're going to talk uh, this morning from this pericope, from this section of scripture. We'll be talking, uh, these are fighting words. These are fighting words. I'm a black Baptist preacher, y'all. And so I'm going to need some help this morning. (laughs) In fact, I need you to make me feel comfortable. So if you'll do me a favor, just do me a favor, a small favor. Turn to your neighbor. You know how we do. Turn to your neighbor. Look look at somebody. Don't look at me. Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor. Neighbor. Good morning. morning. You know what? You must not like that neighbor. Turn to the neighbor (laughs) you do like. Turn to the other neighbor. Don't play me. Turn to the other neighbor. Smile at him. Show them that sausage biscuit you had for breakfast this morning. And say, good morning. Right, now I I feel comfortable. I feel comfortable. I feel comfortable now. I do want to warn you that at some point during this uh, sermon, I might say something that will challenge you. Uh, I pray that you will walk with me through that that moment. Um, You know, I was warned by one of my mentors that transitioning from writing from, uh, to a, a, an academic audience and writing to a public audience is a significant shift. Um, my mentor, his name is Cornell West, he, he warned me that when you're writing for academics, they may disagree with you, uh, they may disagree with your ideas, but that will be the extent of the interaction, if at all. In fact, You may write something and toil over it, and no one might even read it if you're an academic. But he warned me that when you make the transition to writing for a public audience, people will not only disagree with how you think, but they may disagree with you as a person, but they also may turn personal. I wasn't really ready for that personal turn. You see, I wrote an article some time ago where I discussed the experience of being a black undergraduate in a space that is predominantly white. This article was halfway decent, I thought. It was shared by um, President Barack Obama on his Twitter page. Then because he shared it, there's this guy by the name of Rush Limbaugh. I don't know if you ever heard of this guy before. (laughs) Rush Limbaugh then uh, found out about it. He talked about it on his radio program. And because Rush Limbaugh talked about it, then there's this news channel called Fox News. Don't know if you've heard of them before, but this guy by the name of, I think his name is uh, Insanity, no, uh, Hannity. Uh, Hannity. Hannity talked about it on his television program. And when he talked about it on television, it brought out what I discovered was the full force of white supremacist anger. People called me a hate monger for talking about my experiences. They they called the dean's office, my boss, y'all, and they said that I needed to be fired. They sent letters 
to my office at Oklahoma State University, the best university in the state of Oklahoma. Amen. I know I can get an amen on that one. <laughs> and they threatened to visit me in my office. I learned a little bit about interacting with the public that day. But I really learned a year ago when I wrote an article for the New York Times entitled Why I'm Leaving the Southern Baptist Convention, why I no longer wanted to be associated with that convention anymore. I talked about how I could not be silent about my experiences of being a, a black minister in that convention who is dedicated to justice and unapologetically going to defend the right of anyone who wants to marry to get married. Amen. I talked about those experiences. And I received a letter uh, at my office. Uh, and this letter is a challenging letter. I'm going to edit some of it. But this person wrote, when are you people? I'm going to say that since I can't say the N-word. He didn't say N-word, I'm saying that for you. <laughs> going to take effing responsibility for your actions. There is no new Jim Crow. Just stop selling drugs and you won't go to jail, you effing monkey spunk. <laughs> Lovely letter. I got a really surprisingly cordial letter from the KKK. <laughs> it shocked me too. The letter said, it's clear that your heart is full of ungodly intent. We will pray that you will be able to lay down the idol of social justice and accept the separation of the races as God intended. Incredibly cordial letter from the KKK. I was really shocked. But what disturbed me is that this letter was not sent to my office in Stillwater, Oklahoma. This letter was not sent to my email box where... As a writer, I have a public email box. It wasn't sent there, it was sent to my home in Oklahoma City, where my children play basketball and are fond of riding their scooters. See, when the march to unite the right happened in Charlottesville, when the KKK and the white supremacists descended on that college town, so many were shocked. They said things like, this is not who we are as Americans. So many wanted to believe that because a black man was in the White House that we had achieved the dream of King, that the stain of racism had been washed from the guilty hands of, of the American democratic experiment. They wanted to believe that racial inequality was a thing of the past, but I wasn't surprised. I had received letters from good, solid Americans. But our illusions were shattered when Trayvon Martin happened and Eric Garner happened. Jordan Davis, you know the names, Tamir Rice, Rakesha Boyd, Sandra Bland, and just in case you thought it was just a problem in another state, Eric Harris in Tulsa, Terrence Crutcher in Tulsa. These are names that have become hashtags because implicit bias and in case covert racism was wed with police power and resulted in the death of black men and women, boys and girls. So many of us um, spent a lot of time trying to pretend that racism was not a problem in this country. So much time that we have allowed extremists to be the ones to lead the discussion. In the past, many people of faith were afraid to speak truth to power 
because they were concerned about alienating their friends and their families. And now, as a result, we have a man that says nationalistic and racist things in the White House, who is in this Me Too moment, uh, moment defending people accused of pedophilia and sexual assault, and with an air of callousness separating children from their families. And what shocks me, what, what angers me, is that there are people of faith who have the audacity, the unmitigated gall to defend him in their pulpits. Thankfully, I'm not in one of those churches. Amen. You know, when, when I'm asked to speak to mostly white audiences, the temptation is to give you that easy laid back sermon. You know the one, the one that makes you feel good. The one that would inspire all of us to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. <laughs> but God has called me to be honest. And it would be dis dishonest for me to do that. I would not be telling the truth because to paraphrase James Baldwin, to be black in America and relatively conscious is to be in a near constant state of rage. But what bothers me, what bothers me, Lori, is that so few of my white brothers and sisters feel that rage. That troubles me. Because people will say to me, since no one is burning a cross in your front lawn, racism is a thing of the past. Because no one has spat in your face recently. Racism is a thing of the past. Because no one has called you a racial slur to your face, to your face. They'll do it in your email box, but to your face that racism is maybe not over, but at least not as bad. I would argue we need to expand the way that we think and talk about racism. Because yeah, that's overt racism, and it's easy to get people on board whenever someone says the N-word. That's easy, that's low-hanging fruit. We see those kinds of cases when students use blackface, like at my university, and one of them was one of my students, pray for me or when they use racial slurs on college campuses. Even on my campus, one of them was one of my students, pray for me. But, but those are the easy cases of racism to condemn. That's easy to shout down. I wanna talk about the harder cases of racism, the ones that sometimes slip beneath the surface, things that I as a scholar called covert and unconscious racism, things like asking a black woman if you can touch her hair treating her like she's a animal at a petting zoo. Or saying things like, you're pretty, you're real pretty, but you're pretty for a dark girl. Thereby saying that people who are dark-skinned are unattractive, but this person somehow is the exception and has been able to overcome the blight of being dark. Or simply, and this is gonna be tough, just not noticing that there's never a person from a different race in your social circle, that you don't invite them to your home, that you don't allow your children to play with them. And as I had to tell a Baptist church just two weeks ago, I don't think I'm gonna get invited back, <laughs> that you don't allow them in your pulpits. We should ask ourselves, are we doing all that we can to create a world where all are equal and welcome 
without expecting everyone to be uniform. You know, we talk a good game about wanting things to be equal, about wanting to live a life in a world where people see eye to eye, where they have meaningful interactions across racial lines, but we fall woefully short when it comes time to do so in the spaces where we feel most comfortable. It's a function of privilege to be able to say that you're only going to associate with people who look like you and think like you, something that people of color and people who are differently abled and the LGBTQ folks, they just don't have that privilege. I would not be able to go anywhere if I only went to spaces where I was never a minority. I would not be able to go to Whole Foods. I wouldn't be able to go to Trader Joe's. I wouldn't be able to go to Starbucks and I wouldn't be in here right now. And the truth is just because things are better does not mean that we have justice. And so the question becomes, what does God expect of us during times of justice? Well, I came to give you some fighting words because in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, the response that God gives in, re in, in response to the, the negligence of justice, he says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. I don't want you to have church. Your assemblies, they offend me. They are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I don't want them. I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. You sound good to you, but you sound like clanging cymbals to me. I will not listen to the music of your harps. It doesn't really do it for me. I don't want any of that until you let justice roll down like river and righteousness like a never falling stream. He says, you can have your sacred assemblies and you can say you speak for me, you can wear your liturgical garments and you can pray to me as much as you like. You can even sing the songs in your hymns, but if you neglect to fight for justice, then I don't want your worship. You can save your amazing graces. You can close down your houses of worship. He says, if you fail to fight for those, if you fail to stand up for those who are vulnerable, then you are no friend to me. This guy named Jesus, you may have heard of him. He said, when you pray, here's how you should pray. He says, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, however you define that kingdom, I'm sure that we can agree that there is no place in God's kingdom for patriarchy. There is no place in God's kingdom for economic inequality. There is no place in God's kingdom for educational inequality. There is no place in God's kingdom for homophobia, and there is no place in God's kingdom for racism. Amen. Amen. I feel comfortable now. Thank you for that amen. I appreciate it. <laughs> Feels good. And so while I know some of you are tired of hearing it, we've been doing this for five years. I'm going to say it again. Black Lives Matter. Amen. Now, I didn't say that only black lives matter. I didn't say that white lives don't matter. Nor did I say that brown lives don't matter. And I don't even know what a blue life is. But I didn't say that didn't matter either. But I did say black lives matter. Let me tell you why. When I look at the history of this country, and the way that black lives have been marginalized historically. When I look at how Thomas Jefferson, the writer 
of the Declaration of Independence, the guy who said that uh, all men were created equal. Yet, he said, those who inhabit black bodies are inferior intellectually and their lives are expendable. That's a quote. Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, who said that God created black people to be enslaved by white people. And yet, even with him saying that, I see Confederate flags almost daily in Oklahoma. And I may offend you, but yeah, it might be a sign of Southern culture, but when I see it, for me, it is a symbol of terrorism and marginalization. I need to say that Black Lives Matter, because I work on a college campus, and when a young black man comes into my office, as they often do, and says to me that he is treated like a thug on campus by the campus police, when he is pushed up aside the wall because he was just simply walking across campus at night, I need to say to him, your life matters. When that young black woman comes into my office with tears in her eyes because she was told by her classmates that she has the wrong hair texture and that she has the wrong lips and the wrong hips and the wrong skin pigmentation, I need to say to her that your life matters. And then when God's word says you are fearfully and wonderfully made, he was talking about you. I need to say to them that you matter to me and you matter to God. I wish it was true that all lives matter. I wish it was true. But we're living in a world where killing black life will get you paid administrative leave. We are living in a world where killing black life will get you support groups to raise money to fund your expenses. We are living in a world where killing black life will get you non-verdicts and acquittals. We are living in a world where killing black life will get you sympathy on Fox News. And so I'm gonna say it one more time and with clarity. Black Lives Matter. Amen. All right. Okay. I made you uncomfortable. I'm on my way to my seat. And a warning, when a black preacher says he's on his way to his seat, it means he's going to say it at least two more times before he's actually on his way to his seat. <laughs> but I'm on, my way to, I'm on my way to my seat. You know, I am very intentional about separating my duties as a professor from those as a pastor. Uh, I, I, I've gotten myself into trouble by accidentally preaching in class. But one day, on November the 10th, 2016, a group of 10 students, all of them black, came to my office, they closed the door, they didn't have an appointment, and they said, we need to talk to Pastor Ware. I said, well, Pastor Ware is not available, you gotta come and see me on Sunday. They said, no, we need to talk to Pastor Ware. With tears in their eyes, I realized that they were serious. And they said that they needed me to let them know that even though Trump was in the White House, that everything would be okay. They came to me, tears in their eyes, emotional, crying in my office, saying, are we gonna make it through this? Now, before you're too hard on them, I want you to understand something. For eight years, for them, since elementary school, they had a president who looked like them. They had a man in the White House whose decisions, even if you disagreed, at least they made some sense. <laughs> but now they were face to face with four years with a man in that house, in that office, who was unapologetically racist on the campaign trail. And his appeal to white supremacy got him 
into the White House, and they were scared. So I had to do an impromptu sermon, Flory. I did some Langston Hughes theology with them real quick, and I let them know that God did not promise that life would be a crystal stair. There would be tacks in it. There would be splinters, boards torn up in places with no carpet on the floor. But all the time, I had to remind them that we must keep climbing, even though the going gets tough. After I read from the good news of Langston Hughes, I then had a little bit of Bible study with them. And I had to remind them that Romans 8 says that if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? I had to remind them that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I had to remind them that we as a people, black folks, that we have been through far worse than this. I had to remind them that we survived the middle passage and I had to remind them that we survived slavery and I had to remind them that we survived Jim Crow and I had to remind them that if God could keep us back then, God would keep us right now. Then I closed the sermon that I was preaching to them and I said to them that the same God that gave MLK a dream is the same God that's with us right now. The same God that spoke to Serge on the truth and caused her to ask the question, ain't I a woman, is the same God that's with us right now. I had to remind them that the same God that had James Brown said, I'm black and I'm proud, is the same God that's with us right now. Had to let them know that the same God that told Journey to don't stop believing <laughs> is the same God who is with us right now. And so I closed out that sermon that I preached to them by quoting the urban philosopher, Kendrick Lamar. And I had to let them know that we're going to be all right. I told them that Trump was in the White House, but we're going to be all right. I told them that they're shooting down black folks in the streets, but we're going to be all right. I told them that, that, that Trump was elected even though he said he grabbed women, but we're going to be all right. And Mayflower, I came to let you know that even though things are tough and even though things look bleak, I strongly believe that we're going to be all right. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching from Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.